we are at the ending of our second full day and night together. on this retreat. Checking how we are. But beware of that uh, tendency to get shaped by what's manifesting. There's the sense of uh, a lot of good work that's uh, been done here in these first few days. And these first few days can be quite intense as we're facing so directly with very limited options for distraction, facing our karma, eyeball to eyeball with our karma, as our dear friend Ajahn Sujito used to put it. Right facing the tendencies to want to be somewhere else, to want to get rid of what is, to get identified with, stuck to, entangled by what's moving through the heart. But even if these uh, first few days feels like a write-off, oh God, even if we feel like we've the worst meditator, just remembering, and I'm not just saying this uh, to be nice, but just remembering these teachings of the Buddha, and he has no reason to, to lie about those great streams of blessing, streams of that kind of karmic activity he called punya, which bless the world, ripen in happiness, nourish our nourishments for bringing forth that which is pleasing, whole, wholesome. We can, we can get so identified with the various states, might just forget that there's this, been this foundation in this group these first few days of not harming, not taking that which doesn't belong to us, making the effort not to exploit each other for our own sensual gratification. in our noble silence or in our conscious, mindful, reflective speech in the interviews, not to just mislead. Maybe there was some exaggeration, but it's not like a whopping lie. (coughs) Don't think anybody robbed any banks today or terrorized anybody or salt nibbana just by getting smashed. Those great gifts, just just don't forget the gifts of people living together with that, it sounds negative, restraining, refraining from, but remember that refraining from constitutes a very real gift that offers measureless beings freedom from fear, hostility, and oppression just in our monitoring our actions. And in these efforts, these first few days of taking refuge, and rather than taking refuge being one event, I mean, there might be an event that seems significant or important. 
when the sense of confidence in this path became strong. But the, but the way the, the, the Buddha tended to teach it is bhutang saranangachami, present tense verbs, I go for refuge in a moment to Buddha, to wakefulness, to wise reflection, to listening. I go for refuge to dharma. I learn to let my trust be my abiding place deepening my center of gravity and learning to Buddha be aware of, listen to, open to Dharma the way it actually is, the sounds, the feeling tones, the moods, knowing how it is in a moment. And when there's the recognition of uh, having lost that refuge, finding that we've uh, that the quality of wakefulness, presence, has gotten weak, as we find ourselves, there's still a sliver of it, maybe, but that we've been lost. That returning, that path activity, what's called practice or befriending, <coughs> befriending what is skillful, being aware connecting to the present time, bodily presence. Breathing in long, breathing out long, shedding, relinquishing unnecessary stress, gathering our presence. That befriending is what could be called sangha, using each other's presence, example to, to help deepen this Buddha Dhamma refuge, being aware of how it is. So even if we don't have spectacular states of mind to report, nevertheless, there's a deep sense of something really good. I encourage us to open to that possibility especially in these first few days where when there's the metabolizing, the manifestation of the momentum of our undigested restlessness and worry and longing and aversion and woundedness, sometimes that that can be quite difficult. So just to be careful not to write off our experience. And to remember again that we're, as I mentioned on the opening night, is not that we're going somewhere. Oh, I'm so far away, gosh. If it wasn't for that pain or that restlessness or the exhaustion. Just remembering, for example, the Buddha taught the mind is luminous. This mind heart is luminous. It's a fact what he woke up to, this original brightness, this unborn, undying, true nature where all things merge. It's always inviting us. He said the mind, heart is luminous, but we lose contact with it when we get mesmerized, fooled, confused by what moves through the heart. What's been moving through the heart, the beginning of the retreat, the time as it unfolds, right now the Sunday evening Dharma talk, Kitty sorrow. It's moving through the hearts, manifesting the light, the quality of sensations that we're having, some of which are pleasing, that we enjoy, some of which are hard to be with, which you could call painful. 
mood moving through the heart. What happened this morning? It could seem so convincing. Maybe an exhaustion. Maybe a peaceful moment. Now it's a memory. And that wondering what will come tonight, tomorrow, next week, next year. It's unknown. Hasn't happened. It's the future. We know, we can recognize that speculation. We're just remembering all our practice is uh, we're getting more familiar with what moves through the heart, how we get tangled by it, stuck to it recoil from it. But to keep remembering that this, the great saints and sages have talked about this ever-present brightness that each sound returns to. The matrix, the context of our experience. What could be called the listening, the knowing, the Buddha, our moments of being mindful of the way things are, we're returning to this core, little by little learning to trust that. And the training, the the path, the activity which leads to this recognition of our true, inherent, bright, peaceful nature, what's called the Eightfold Path, the Path of Awakening, has as its foundation this ethical training which we resolved upon the first night together. And that, that leads to freedom from remorse, leads little by little to self-respect, and helps lead to that middle aspect of the path, this concentration, this uh, samadhi, this gatheredness. And that when the heart is gathered, when the heart is composed, the Buddha said, the nature of the heart that's composed is it will see things the way they are. A heart that's composed recognizes things as they are. We've been working primarily uh, today, last few days, on this training of composing ourselves in the present moment, what's called samadhi. It's challenging. It's not an easy practice, but important. Encourage patience. The great Samadhi King, one of the great forest masters of Thailand, Ajahn Lee, who uh, is one of the colleagues of our our master, Ajahn Chah, who... uh, he compared this, this uh, path activity uh, of uh, uh, building a bridge across a river from a dangerous shore to a safe shore on the other side. And that the, the ethical training, the samadhi, the middle path, the wisdom are three pylons or pillars that one sinks into the river to build this bridge. He talked about how the pylon in the shallows on the near side and on the far side, the ethics, the pylon on the near side, and the wisdom, the pylon on the far side, are easier to establish. But that sinking, that support pillar in the middle of the river through the fast currents, it's the most difficult one. In a way, ethics are challenging too, but they're more tangible. It's a little by little, just refrain from not harming, for example. But in the currents of all the sights, 
sounds, sensations, thoughts, memories, expectation, the currents of the mind to establish a quality of steadiness. That's challenging. That's this challenge of samadhi that we've been doing. And as I said, when there is a measure of samadhi, a measure of really being here, then when that quality of presence turns to the nature of a moment, it will see it the way it is. Not just distorted through a bias. It's me, it's mine, it's good, it's bad. Many times we're not really seeing things as they are. We're just, our, the reality is being constellated, crystallized by our opinions, by our biases. But when there is a measure of presence, gatheredness, being stabilized in the moment, then one will notice that the sounds are ephemeral. They're like this, this Dharma talk. We can make a big thing out of a Dharma talk. It's a good talk, or it's a bad talk, or it's, oh God, I'm, why is it so late in the evening? I'm going to make it through the talk. But when one goes up close with a quality of presence, one will see that this so-called talk is full of holes. keeps dissolving. It's ephemeral, ungraspable. Same with our moods and opinions about ourselves. Like a hot stove cast iron stove that's been heated, when a drop of water falls on it, it's there and then it's gone. Another drop of water. When our mind is more present, stabilized, we'll notice that thoughts like, I'm happy, I'm miserable, one will seize, not that They're not there, but one will notice their ephemeral nature and the underlying, steady background of wakefulness will be manifest, be clear. Think, wow, how did I overlook that? One will not be so swept away by the opinions, the worries, the doubts. But when, we're, when our samadhi, our gatheredness, is more weak, then we do, and this is what we experience when anxiety and worry comes, or the thoughts that, oh gosh, you're a good person, we feel good, and then the thoughts, oh, you're a hopeless case, golly, you... How many mindful moments did you have in that walking? <sighs> I can't believe it, after all these years... <coughs> not going anywhere. We can, we can get so robbed. We feel miserable. So we've been using this training, wonderful training that the Buddha taught. Mindfulness, moments of mindfulness. Don't overlook the value of a moment of mindfulness. Even though there's many moments of being lost, the moment of consciously being present for a step, for standing, for noticing sensation, for being with an in-breath, being with an out-breath, then as those moments of mindfulness recur, and Cha described it like a faucet dripping, drip, 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 dr
when the Buddha was asked to define samadhi, he said, citta kagata. Short definition. Citta kagata. Citta, the heart. This awareness, ekagata, unified. Rather than dismembered, disjointed, fractured, but gathered. What gets unified, these different dimensions of our being that that we that get split apart. The thinking mind, which can get all lost in worrying about the future, chewing over again and again the past. Losing touch with the body, the present time manifestation of body. Then the desires and the worries and the fears, the emotions sweep us this way and that. In a moment of practicing a long breath, breathing in long, breathing out long. Bringing the attention, it's the heart and the body together. Using a thought to direct the attention. So I'd like to to, to just briefly review these these factors that, that the Buddha taught that help us develop, establish this pillar support pillar down through the currents of the river, of the mind, to a solid ground. Tanisha was talking about vitaka vichara, what are called jhana factors. Jhana is just another word for when our presence is plugged in. It's a steady quality of presence. A samadhi that is steady. Rather than thought being an enemy, it's not the enemy. Unregulated thought, thought that's just going wild, that's just tangling us up. Yes, it can be wonderful when thought is uh, subsides, it can be beautiful. But if we, if we imagine thought is just an enemy, then, then we, we, we tend to fight it. And forget that it can be a friend, a tool. So this first quality that helps us develop this steadiness of heart, svitaka, a thought that directs our attention. It's moderating thought, thought that just gets into paragraphs and phrases and, and stories we easily can get lost. But a thought like here, now. And that thought manifests and then dissolves here, now. But as it dissolves, it has directed attention, the quality of awareness, right to this moment, to this body sitting, moderating thought, using thought to connect body, thinking, Awareness, all right in the same place. <coughs> breathing in bud, breathing out toe, or breathing in peacefully, I breathe in. Peacefully, I breathe out. That thought will not disturb first deep level of peace. It's similar to if you're threading a needle or something or doing something that requires some steadiness. Have you ever noticed your mind saying steady? It's just whispering to remind you to stay with it. It's a part of the first steady stable level of peacefulness. So don't be afraid of using a thought and exploring what thought helps us. 
even breathing in or breathing out. Or even accounting can be a quiet thought that just helps us remember to stay with what we're doing so the cognitive faculty is there. Directs the attention and then receiving, feeling into the texture, in this case of the body, sitting, breathing. Then the third factor that we haven't really talked about very much, which is called pity, or it's sometimes translated as rapture, which can be an off-putting translation. We can imagine it just in its more dramatic manifestation of hair standing on end or tears pouring out or some rapturous. But the, the principle is very, very important and one that we can practice. Re- remember when, when the Buddha was talking about the function of samadhi, he, he said that, that the function of it is that so that one, the first function is so that we can cultivate a pleasant way of being, a pleasant abiding in the here and now. An abiding that doesn't exploit, that doesn't harm, that's not dependent on environment, externals. It's a pleasant abiding that wells up from within. The second function of samadhi is that it, it leads to knowledge and vision. The more composed we are, as I was saying, then one sees clearly. It also leads to alertness and mindfulness. It, it lets us be present for our life, not just sleepwalking. And finally, uh, the most profound function of samadhi is it allows us to see into the true nature and be liberated from that which entangles us. So this first function of pleasant abiding, this factor of pity or what's called rapture is an important part of that. Rather than saying rapture, I uh, like to, in Tanishana, I like to think of it as developing the ability to savor the moment, to, to be filled with the moment, to learn how to enjoy the moment. One of the great obstacles to meditation is aversion. Is the is quickly judging? Oh gosh, that's painful. Or oh god, but it, but it was so amazing yesterday, and then we try too hard to get there, and not realize that even a f- painful sensation or a fatigue sensation, as we take refuge, being aware in the dhamma, the way it is, and notice that sensation as we breathe in and breathe out. To cultivate pity means to welcome it, to be a container so the awareness opens to it. And there's an alchemical, a transformative process that happens when we're willing to be with that. rather than too quickly thinking, oh, this is not the way it should be, and then wanting to skip ahead or feeling, oh, it's just not working today. A lot, this attitude of being willing to practice enjoying, rather than assuming something's wrong here. This activity of the path is the healing activity. It w- Within certain limits, it allows things to as well as they can balance. It's combined with the next uh, factor called sukha, which means ease, relaxing. Learning to be okay with it, to be happy with the moment. 
again, rooted in this idea that it's not a question of getting somewhere else. That's the engine of samsara, imagining that the good stuff is over there, around the corner. Learning how to enjoy this moment. Relax in this moment. Very important, as we deepen our trust, that the treasure is here, it's not somewhere else. That's the, one of the beauties of that morning bowing practice. Namo Kwan Chin Pusa, I return my life to the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world, touching the ground, relaxing, letting go of all the opinions about how it should be, and touching that ground of just listening, being aware, receiving the sounds of the world the sensations of the world. was a turning point in the Buddha's own practice, what we've been practicing. Remember his, his story, he went forth, he, when he was disillusioned with the life of the prince, even though he had all the finest clothes and foods and beautiful beings around him, when he recognized that he and everyone else would face old age sickness and death, He knew he had to search for what is truly peaceful, what is truly trustworthy. When he recoiled from a wrinkled, bent-over person, recoiled, didn't want to see that, when he caught himself, Just the vanity. He said, the vanity of youth left me. He realized, well, what am I recoiling from when, when I'm subject to this? I don't want to see sickness when he found himself recoiling. Vomit, diarrhea, fever, recoiling. The vanity of health left him when he realized, well, you know, for me to push that away, I'm pushing away my own nature. Similarly, when he, he saw the reaction to death, he said the vanity of life left him. What, what, what am I re- pushing away, this inherent aspect of this nature? So he wondered what, what doesn't age, what doesn't sicken, what doesn't die. And it, it, first he followed the yogis of the time and went into great formless states, imagining that the deathless was some disembodied state. He learned how to do these great Olympic meditations, the, the realm of nothingness and neither perception nor non-perception. That's meditating with no sense of the body whatsoever. He got good at it. But he kept coming down then there was the assumption that it's this, the problem is form, it's this body. <coughs> he thought, oh, I'm coming back down because I'm attached to these senses, to pleasure. So then he, he practiced the austerity, the great ascetic practices, starvation, just eating, cutting down to eating a small handful of grain, even felt breathing was a luxury, and so he even was cutting his breathing down. Till he got to so exhausted, so he talked about scratching his stomach and feeling his backbone, scratching his hair and the 
falling out by the roots, wanting to urinate and finding himself falling on his face. He knew he had great willpower, patience, but there was no peace. And the thought occurred, might there be another way? When he had that thought, a memory, a memory came, a childhood memory. When there was a festival, when his father, the king, was having a festival, maybe it was a Thanksgiving, a harvest festival. We're doing the same thing. It was a festival, banquets, speeches maybe, dances. He didn't have a placard and protest the festival, but he remembered as a child he just withdrew off to the side. He retreated, just like we are. He just retreated and sat under a rose apple tree as a child, moving a little bit away from the activities. And with the innocence of a child, the pure-heartedness of a child, he remembered that he just noticed his body breathing. And he remembered the beautiful state he entered. And then he thought, as he was remembering back, why am I afraid of that? That pleasure is not harming anyone. Yes, if I want to feel that way all the time, if I attach to it, there'll be some suffering, but I'll see that. And he recognized that's the way wasn't a question of demonizing form. Yes, it's one thing to really get entangled and attached to form, but another to just reject form, the middle path. He needed to welcome form with wisdom, care. But he realized he couldn't enter that state because he was so exhausted, so... He knew he needed to eat, so he had the thought at the moment, I need nourishment. And the beautiful coincidence, the synchronicity, the perfection of the universe had at that moment a, a, a young maiden who wanted to make an offering saw this gaunt ascetic. But something about his presence, she knew he was doing something important, so she wanted to make an offering milk rice, and he accepted it from a young maiden. Was her name Sujata? Sujata. Sujata, yeah. And to the ascetics of the time, that was pretty slippery slope, receiving (laughs) food from a young maiden, my God. He's lost it. So they, his, his colleagues all abandoned, abandoned him for being a slacker, but he had confidence. And he re- restored his strength. And that's very symbolic, that receiving, that nurturing from the feminine, from the form. Yes, there's this yang directing our attention, but there's that that feminine aspect of receiving, feeling into, learning to nurture, part of the skill of our practice. Long breath in, long breath out, finding the body. Short breath as we're beautiful, letting the attention stabilize somewhere letting the blessing of awareness quicken the vibration, feeling into that. But then, remember, the Buddha encouraging us to train the attention to be sensitive to the whole body, so allowing the awareness to then widen and receive our whole body so that the energy, the currents of the different elements, organs, currents of the body can widen mix, mingle, tranquilizing the body.
then with that composure, seeing into the nature. And in the time, I just would like to, to, to encourage us not to, even if we don't feel very skilled at this, you know, I just really encourage to have a long view for the rest of our life, little by little in moments, learning to stand, compose ourselves, access even for a moment, learning to enjoy that simplicity, to sit, to walk, to breathe, that in a planet that, that where we're just raping the earth by only knowing the pleasure of getting what we want, seeing what we want, hearing what we want, having what we want, that only knowing the pleasure of acquisition, to actually be developing little by little by little a pleasure that doesn't exploit, that's learning to appreciate the beauty of listening, feeling, breathing, being aware, standing, is, is something that is uh, a great gift to ourselves and a great gift to, uh, to the world. And yes, these, these days we're going to get the, the challenges. And so in the, the, we've all, or most of us, I'm sure, have seen that which blocks and obstructs this, this you know, karmic tendencies of wanting to be somewhere else wanting to get rid of what's here, what are classically called the the hindrances. And those are not that something's going wrong, it's just uh, bringing our attention to what uh, what sweeps us away from being able to delve into the depths, the true depths of uh, the treasury of of our heart. And um, we don't need to, to hate these energies. We'll, we'll, we'll learn to be more skillful with them in the coming days. Explore them. When, my, um, when I left Oxford, I was on a Rhodes Scholarship. But I was so even though there was a certain amount of success in that, uh, and at all the trophies and pictures and scrapbooks that my mom had collected of my accomplishments, I felt so exhausted of always trying to get to the next success. I felt so weary in hearing about a wise uh, teacher in Thailand, where you could learn how to, you know, to be well, to be free, just really captivated me. So I went off to, in 1976, I went off to Thailand and ended up staying a monk for 15 years. But when I first went, my parents were horrified. And they said, oh, God. And they looked on the globe, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and northeast Thailand are the opposite. And they thought, oh gosh, he's gone to get as far away on the earth from us as possible. We must have done something terribly wrong. So, and plus at that time there was the nightmare of Vietnam and the war and the uh, nightmare of Laos and the bombings and then the rumors coming out of Cambodia of uh, the killing fields, still just the rumors. And our monastery was located on the right near the border in Thailand and near the Mekong River, not far from Cambodia and Laos. And also there were cults at that time that wasn't far away from when all those people took poison, committed mass suicide. And so my poor parents were wondering what is going on, you know, Buddhism was not like really well-known in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So they went, made a pilgrimage to the, to the monastery and 
for my mom to go to a jungle in northeast Thailand. I'm telling you, that wasn't where her favorite destination. But uh, they went. And um, and Ajahn Chah really received them with with grace. And uh, it wasn't easy for my mom and dad to sleep on these tiny grass mats in a jungle with all sorts of creatures. Still, he received them really nicely. And my father was worried at that time because there was all these communist guerrillas and activity in our area, and it was dangerous. And as I was saying about the wars and the, the rumors across the border. And so my dad asked the question, and Ajahn Chah said, yes, there are those, there is that danger. But he said, the ones you should be really worried about are the guerrillas, the communist guerrillas. Nowadays it would be terrorists, the terrorists in your own heart, when you don't recognize them. The greed, the wanting what you don't have, the aversion, wanting to get rid of what's here the delusion, imagining that we own this stuff. He said, though, that is the, those are the terrorists, the, the gorillas that uh, will rob you of well-being. And he gave my, my father and mother this uh, beautiful talk about what we were doing. So I encourage us to just trust this practice of taking refuge in the moment and learning how to cultivate, even just for moments, a pleasing abiding and learning to have our stand in the truth of things. And that as we get faced with what blocks us is that wanting, wanting to be somewhere else, rather than hating that, being interested in that, that wanting's always pointing out somewhere. An aversion, that wanting to get rid of, rather than being so shaped by this wanting and not wanting, we little by little learned how to just recognize, ah, that's moving through the heart. Ah, there's wanting. Why do we have to believe that's me? When, it, when we think it's me, then we're hijacked by it and we're moving over there. We think aversion, when we think it's me, then we're, when we become it, oh, then we have to get rid of something. When we Buddha are aware of the way things are, there can be a moment of noticing, ah, it's that. It's wanting. It's not wanting. rather than hating these things or thinking, golly, I'm so hindered, I have all these hindrances, desire and aversion and anxiety and restlessness and sloth and torpor with double doses. <laughs> to, to our uh, teacher encouraged us to let them be sharpening stones. They're teachers. They will challenge us to be present. Because if we're not present, if we're not aware, we just get hijacked by them. But when there's a moment of wakefulness, then then, then a desire, in a moment of being with desire, and noticing it as just that, we touch the part of the heart that's not desire. In a moment of being with a not wanting and aversion, being present with it, patient with it, learning not just to be so lost in the story, to feel it in the body, then we touch that in the heart which is not aversion, which is kind, that's able to be with that energy. These, these, all these so-called hindrances will teach us 
or deepness. And in a moment, even if the nervous system is exhausted, even if there's desire or aversion of restlessness, in a moment of really seeing this is the way it is, then there'll be a possibility of not grasping, not rejecting, and noticing the ever-present, shining, brightness, which remains, which has been here all along, which is untainted, unsullied, which is at the core, always here. This dharma, this nibbana, the Buddha said, is always here and now, inviting us. So I encourage us to take heart, to trust that uh, there are many blessings in what we've done so far. finally to give thanks for our good fortune to be spending this time not harming, stabilizing, taking refuge in that which is true. Thank you for your attention. For those who wish, we can do some walking. Or if one needs to rest, please rest well. And for those who have the energy, there will be another, a final sitting and a sharing of blessings from at 9.30. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.